Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, My name's Tyler. Would you bow your heads with me once more um, before we dive into God's word? Lord, the reason uh, why we come to you, if we come to you as Christian, is because as Peter told us last week, um, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The reason why uh, we willingly live out that faith in ways that are sometimes costly and burdensome is because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The reason why we come and gather in the best of times is because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The reason why we long to gather when it's prohibited from us is because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The reason why we gather again in limited capacities in a broken world is because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so Jesus, we ask today um, that you give us tongues to taste your goodness. As the old hymn goes, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Lord, if we could understand the goodness of your gospel in full, we would find our singular tongue woefully incomplete to sing at the level of which you have called us to sing. And so, Lord, we ask that you work miracles in this place today of giving those who have had no taste a taste of your goodness, of those who have tasted it to enamor them with with what it means to continue to taste that for the rest of our lives. Uh, We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Good to see you all. Good to see you who are still at home watching. Um, If you have a Bible and haven't yet done so, would you please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, We've been working through the book of 1 Peter, and today uh, Peter's going to talk about the intersection of Christianity, that is, uh, what we believe in the gospel, that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, the intersection of that Christianity and the culture in your heart and the culture in your world. And throughout history, uh, Christians have always needed to figure out what it looks like to be a Christian both privately, what does it mean that I am a Christian, that I think like a Christian, that I talk like a Christian, pray like a Christian, act like a Christian, internally, but what does that mean externally? What does that mean to live as a Christian in a world which may or may not be Christian? And there have been books and lectures and even entire communities that have formed, depending upon one's answer to the relationship of the church and her gospel in culture. And broadly speaking, there are kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum that you could take in your relationship between Christianity and culture, which is not Christian, whatever that is, not just secular, but religious, whatever it is. And there is that Christianity and whatever the other culture is, they can be friends, they could coexist. And on the other end of the spectrum is those who say that Christianity and whatever the other culture is are destined to constantly be foes. And while this might sound like a weird, scholastic, scholastic debate that scholars have. The truth is, to live as a Christian is to live out of assumed answers to how your Christianity, how your faith responds to the culture of your heart and the culture of your world in general. We do it all the time. In fact, if you're not a believer, you have perhaps wrestled yourself with your own opinions, your own reality, and the reality of your culture. 
And today, if you're here or you're listening online, you are encountering a culture that is distant from yours, and it's forcing you to interact with that as well. And if I were to generalize, and if we were to look at Christian history, there seems to be four kind of default Christian mindsets that a Christian can take concerning their relationship between their faith and their culture. And these four ways kind of form like a gradient from culture is friendly to culture is foe. And I want to share kind of those four categories with you this morning. And I want you to see if you can see yourself or maybe kind of the culture you are raised in, in one of these. And so first, there's what I call Casper Christianity. For the Casper Christians, Christianity is the friendly ghost. There's really not much disagreement between culture and Christianity because faith is largely invisible and immaterial. Faith is something that is meant for the private, personal life and has no impact in what happens outside. So there's no, there's no confrontation. Christianity is one thing and the rest of life is another. It is the don't ask, don't tell position of the religious. That's the Casper Christians. And then there's chameleon Christianity. For the chameleon Christian, they seek to align themselves with culture, not necessarily by hiding or acting like their Christianity has no bearing on the world, but instead they openly adapt their Christianity to the backdrop of the modern world. Depending upon what stage of church history you parachute into, that chameleon action looks different. Today, it probably looks like filtering your faith through the pluralistic lens of tolerance, where truth becomes relative. It's personalized. You can have your truth. I can have my truth. And because of that, we begin to relativize the gospel. We can kind of soften some of the sharp edges that exist. And those edges could be doctrines of sin or judgment or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And instead, we adapt our message to summarize Christianity as Christianity is just the religion of good works and love. We do good and we love others because that's what Jesus did for us. And the truth is, culture doesn't get upset about that. Culture is not opposed to good works and loving other people. Or maybe you find yourself not as much on the friend side, but perhaps on the foe side. And maybe you're one who, you're a proponent of what I call crusader Christianity. Crusader Christianity understands that there is a distinction. There is a secular culture, and there is a Christian culture. But it thinks that if it can take the position of power, it can, it can rule with its culture and subject any other culture. And they could do this two ways, either top-down or bottom-up. And I think there's kind of a strict age limit for how you view those things. There are some who are crusader Christians from the top-down, meaning they realize if they can control the political stations of power, they can legislate Christianity and morality. If we could have the right system of government, the right judges, the right president, the right laws, then we will have power over culture. And conversely, probably myself and my peers under me, we come from the bottom up. We're less concerned about the top-heavy political aspect of things, but we think if we can influence the arts, the sciences, and entertainment, then we can convince the world of how good and beautiful this gospel is, and we will usher in kind of this mingling of heaven down here on earth, and they will see how good it is to be Christian. Both seek to subject other cultures by the power of their culture. That's crusader Christianity. It's woefully optimistic, but it's dripped in blood. It's going to conquer the other cultures. 
And then lastly, there's what I call curmudgeon Christianity. This is the get-off-my-lawn brand of Christianity. Like the crusader, they realize there's a culture gap. There is culture which is Christian, and there's culture which is not Christian. But they lack the optimism and triumphalism of the crusader. And so what they do is they hole up in their Christian ghettos, and they build their walls high, and they wait to be taken out of here. I like to call them the get me out of here songs, like swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to get me out of here. Like, we just want to leave. And if we are forced to go out in public, we go so, we, like we invented social distancing. We are so suspect of anything and distrustful of anything which does not look, sound, or smell Christian. The Casper Christian, the Chameleon Christian, the Crusader Christian, and the Curmudgeon Christian. I've seen myself in all of them at various times. But why is it that I start with this summary? Because whether you're aware of it or not, however you act is influenced by how you view the intersection of your faith and the culture of your heart and the culture of your world. And contrary to just being something that you want to figure out on paper and write like you would turn into a teacher or a professor, this is my view of X, what we see today is the ramifications of your belief on how your faith in the gospel affects the culture of your heart and the culture of your world actually has the ability to help or to harm not only your heart, but the hearts of those who are around you. And in Peter Day, he's going to assume attention. He's going to assume this in two places. First, he's going to assume attention in your heart. And then he's going to assume attention in our world. What do we do when we run into these places of tension? Well, he's going to say largely, we ought not to be overly triumphalistic. Because there's a real challenge. There are real burdens. There's real brokenness. It's not all guns and glory when it comes to living out the Christian life. But we're also not to view this tension with a defeatist withdrawal. We're not to just act like we have no hope and withdraw away from our own sin or withdraw from the trials in our world. Instead, what he's going to provide for us is a realistic view of gospel Christianity, one which takes its cues not from our cultural acceptance or our cultural resistance, but takes our cues from the gospel. It's a Christianity where the tension of the cross makes sense of the tension of our lives. And we're going to see this today in two short verses, which KJ read, verses 11 through 12, in two ways. First, we're going to see the internal battle for your heart, and then secondly, we're going to see the external battle for the heart of others. Internal battle of your own heart, and the external battle for the heart for others. And this is our text again, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, Peter is beginning to move the church into more and more specific commands about how the gospel causes you to live differently. Today we see two of those things. That's what we're going to unpack. Next week we're going to see that Peter wants us to act distinctly in regards to government and authorities. I don't know if that's applicable in today's world, but we'll find out. Then he's going to show us how we're to act distinctly in relationship to our spouses, for those who are married. And then he's going to show how we ought to act distinctly when we suffer. 
The gospel really changes all of our life. Do you do anything to earn salvation? No. Jesus did all of the things necessary to earn salvation. But when you have received that salvation, it changes everything that you do. Doing doesn't earn salvation, but salvation changes what we do. When it comes to acting differently, Peter knows that it's not always easy. I have a friend who just found out she's lived most of her life with pretty severe food allergies. And while this was a welcome truth to find, it's changed, it's helped a lot, she still wrestles with it. It's still hard. It's hard not to like the thing. She's been raised to eat and like. It's hard to gather with people and not have the same common basis of food that makes up much of our social gatherings, not only in America, but as a Baptist church. We love our food. There's this natural tension with it. And so too, when we are changed by Jesus, we are changed by a wonderfully healing change. And yet it's difficult, isn't it? There's a battle of tastes we used to have, of tensions we now experience. And Peter is leaning into this tension. I heard this said once, I forget where I heard it said, but they just said our tendency is to eliminate tension in the Bible, and we just can't. Never eliminate the tension that God puts in his word. And we see how Peter leans into this tension in verse 11 where he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles. Peter calls the church sojourners and exiles. People without a home. People who are not displaced physically. We don't know that about Peter's church, but what we do know is they're displaced spiritually. These are people who are learning to adapt to a culture which is different than your birth culture, which for anyone who's born again, you wrestle with that same tension. You are learning a different culture that is different than your birth culture. And he's already made mention of this. You remember back in 1 Peter 1, this is how he introduced himself. This is what he opens up his book with. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To be a Christian is to belong by grace through faith to God and not to the world. And as a result, there's a level of tension that we can so quickly get rid of. Some of us, we think that we still belong to the world, and Christianity will always be a stumbling block. And for others, we think we only belong to God, and for that, living out the Christian life will be a stumbling block when we encounter things and people who are not godly. We've been freed from sin, and yet we still wrestle with sin. We've been promised a bodily resurrection from the dead, and yet we still ache in our bodies. We have been promised a salvation not only from the wages of sin, eternal death, but from all the consequences of sin. And yet we know in our heart and our world presents to us on the daily pictures of brokenness unparalleled and seemingly never-ending. And that's because Christians exist in what people have long called the already and the not yet. You are already saved. In Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. But what Peter told us in chapter 1 is you, you are not already finally saved. You've not reached the end. We are not in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. You have already received so much. But you have not already received 
everything. And in the midst of this tension of the already and not yet, being promised everything but not quite given everything, Peter comes into that awkwardness with one word, beloved. 1 Peter 2, 11, first word, beloved. What is our hope as sojourners and strangers? It is that even as though we live in the already and not yet, in this moment, while much of the promises of God are future, you are in this moment wholly loved by God himself. We know and we long for the way that love changes us. We look for love culturally. We look for love romantically. We look for love from our bosses towards us. It validates us. It proves us. It comforts us. But all last week, Peter was reminding us that it is not in being loved by the world you find freedom. It is in being loved by God. And through Jesus and his perfect fulfillment of the law, you have been accepted by God himself. Culture's love for you changes. But God's love for you for those who put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, is a uniquely foundational love. 1 Peter 1.18, he says, You have been ransomed from your futile ways of thinking, not by gold or silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.23, he says, You, Christian, you who have your faith and hope in God, you have been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed by the living and abiding word of God. And on top of this identity, there is still wonderful things yet to come. Verse 3 of chapter 1, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Have you ever wondered... What does it mean to be loved by God? We talk about that a lot, but if you had to describe what it means to be loved by God, how would you describe that? Peter's helping us here. We need to see how he's helping us here. He says it means you have been ransomed from the hands of a dangerous enemy. It means you've been accepted not by your own works, but by the perfect works of Jesus it means you have the promise of eternal life. It means that laid up for you is an inheritance and, award, and a reward that nothing in this world can ever touch. You see, Christianity includes what we're getting into today, which is the do language. Christianity has do language in it, but it is always rooted in the done of Jesus Christ. This life will present trials for you as sojourners and strangers, but the biggest affirmation and comfort you have when you encounter that tension of the already and not yet is to realize in those moments you are loved by God through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that will sustain you in that moment of tension other than the fact that Jesus has already taken care of your greatest need. You are loved by grace through faith in Jesus. In Psalm 77, the psalmist is lamenting this already not yet world. God, you've promised us so many things, an eternal kingdom, a good king, freedom from persecution and enemies, and yet I don't feel it. And look at what he does in verses 4 through 9. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. There's the not yet. This eternal crying, wearisome that he cannot speak. But, 
I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Here the psalmist feels the weight of the sojourner. And in order to solve this, he begins to ask himself rhetorical questions based off what God has done. And he asks himself these questions. Has the Lord spurned me and will never again be favorable? There's an assumed answer. No. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? No. Are his promises at an end for all time? No. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No, no, no. Because he looks at what his God has done. How much more for New Testament believers who can look back at the person and work of Jesus Christ who obeyed God perfectly and died for our sins so that he might take our punishment and we might get his life. And he rose from the dead in newness of life. Newness of life that we will one day have eternally. How much do we need to rehearse the same recitation of God's truth when it comes to the hard moments of our life? I had, this week was just, it was a burdensome week in my own heart. And there were times where I needed this. The best I had was going back to what God has done in Jesus Christ and saying, has he ceased loving me? Has Jesus ceased interceding for me? Has Jesus submitted himself back to the grave for me? No, no, no. We have immense hope. It is foundational. And for those who don't have this, I want to invite you to it. You are not Christian by default. You are not Christian by natural birth. You are not Christian because you're raised in America or because your parents are Christian. You are Christian because Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that you have put your faith and hope in God. I want you to handle the tension of the dew in a world that makes it difficult by seeing that Jesus has done everything for you and that nothing can take that away. And this is so important for us to see as Christians because we will not be able to live as Christians if we do not see the love which makes us Christian. And this is so needed because if you can remember your own conversion, the first place we actually begin to feel like a stranger when Jesus saves us is inside of our own hearts. Before anyone tells us something's different, we experience the differences, don't we? And if we don't understand that rightly, when we encounter sin in our own hearts, we won't know what to do. But this is our first point today, the internal battle for your own heart. This is what Peter says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here Peter begins to address the internal culture of your own heart. To have been ransomed by Jesus, to have been reborn by his word, to be accepted by his works, is to now have new desires in your heart. And it means that old desires now become irrelevant. And the truth is, when we rightly understand the gospel, 
The old desires we did have, the old desires we thought we needed, are quickly shown to be desires we don't need. We don't need what we once desired. When we realize that it's Jesus' work that justifies us, we don't need to constantly strive for our own glory in our work. When we realize that it's Jesus that fully satisfies us, we don't need to be enslaved to food or to wine or to entertainment. When we realize that it's Jesus who brings us identity, being accepted before God, we realize we don't need to find our own identity in our beauty or in our sexual exploits. When we realize that Jesus brings us purpose, we don't need to be enslaved to the never-ending quest for adventure or accomplishment. It is wonderfully true that when we realize Christ has done all of it, we don't need those things anymore. But here's the problem. Just because we don't need them doesn't mean that our broken hearts won't desire them. And that's the problem of the already and not yet. For those of you who have uh, read or watched Lord of the Rings, we see this battle that Peter's alluding to, I think most clearly in the character of, of Gollum and Smeagol. Smeagol was the peaceful, friendly hobbit, and Gollum was this bent inward, wicked, grotesque thing that the power of the ring corrupted him into. But what's interesting is for most of the series, Smeagol slash Gollum doesn't have the ring. Frodo, the ring bearer, does. It was Frodo's burden to bear. And yet it didn't mean that the voice of Gollum was silent to Smeagol. Just because Jesus on the cross takes away from us the burden of sin for us to exclusively bear does not mean that the voice of sin is forever silenced in our hearts. We must learn to continually abstain from the old ways of Gollum. And like Smeagol in the story, we must learn to trust and submit ourselves to our new master, the one who carries our burden for us. As effective as Jesus is to bear our sin, Peter knows how hard it is to say no to that inner voice. He knows how hard it is to say no to the things which once brought us comfort, which once brought us security, which once brought us identity. And he, comes, he, he identifies with your need here. If you wrestle with sin and you're just like, am I an idiot or something? I want you to hear the weight and also the comfort Peter gives when he calls it the passions of the flesh. We love to think of passion for a spouse, passion for our favorite sports team, passion for our children. But don't neglect what Paul is saying about sin, or Peter here. You wrestle with sin because you're passionate for it. All sin is first and foremost a crime of passion. This is really important for us to understand because we tend to depersonalize and sterilize sin don't we? We try to kind of pacify it by simply talking about sin in terms of rules. It's a violation of a rule. It is perhaps just a wrong action or a wrong thought, but the Bible actually digs deeper, and this is why it's so hard to wrestle with in our own lives. Sin is actually at its root a wrong affection. It is a wrong desire, a wrong craving. This is, makes sense of why it's so difficult to root out, isn't it? And I'm sure you've realized that. In your own salvation, there are times where we don't first encounter a rule. We first encounter a desire and a craving. A craving not according to the living and abiding word, but a craving according to our flesh. And so the question is, what do you do when you encounter 
that tension. Because we can respond to that temptation in two ways, each of it which reveal a culture that must be corrected by the gospel. First, we can respond to that craving, we can respond to that passion with kind of an overly dismissive triumphalism. We can, like the church in Galatia, think that Jesus has saved us, I don't need his help anymore. I've got the man might to do it. By my bootstraps, by my clenched fists, I can defeat sin and I don't need Jesus in this. I've got what it takes to do it. And then, also triumphantly, we could say Jesus took care of all the consequences of sin. Therefore, I don't even need to worry about it. Jesus took care of sin. If I sin now, what is it? there's grace for that. But both of these are wrong-headed thoughts about the nature of sin. Notice what Peter says. These passions wage war against your soul. Sin is not a matter of morality. Sin is a matter of mortality. It has the ability to kill you, to maim you, to harm you. Left unchecked, sin will tear you away from what you claim to be true and it will throw you on the garbage heap destined for destruction. It is a danger to you. It is waging war. Peter says this to Christians, to professing exiles. It wages war against you. Look at what the Apostle James says in James 1 verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You cannot afford triumphalism when it comes to your fight against sin. Sin seeks to destroy you. And as familiar as it might be, we spend our whole lives prior to Jesus sinning. As comforting as it might be, we spend our whole lives prior to Jesus self-medicating in the vices of sin. The gospel shows the cross and it sees the danger of it. It leads to death. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite old dead men, says, Sin promises like a god and pays like a devil. It does not benefit you. And yet against such a dangerous foe, we're optimistic. We don't trend towards empty triumphalism, but neither do we, uh, do we respond with defeatist withdrawal, saying, I can never beat sin. It is so powerful and it is so dangerous and it is so deadly. Why is this? Well, because the gospel, too, speaks to this. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God gave us, that is those who believe, a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. Because Jesus has ransomed us, because Jesus has made you born again by a living and abiding word of God, because he has empowered you with the Holy Spirit, you really can effectively wage war against sin. There is optimism in your life that the sin that has root of the passions in your heart can actually be displaced by God's grace. By a combination of his power and your faithfulness in walking where God has called you to walk, you ought to believe that he can help you even when the odds seem insurmountable. So how do we do this? How can we begin to put aside the passions of our own heart? Well, first we do what Peter calls you to do. Abstain from those sins. 
Like, don't participate. Don't date it. Don't try to negotiate with it. Abstain from it. Run from it. That's Peter's message. Don't think that you could go toe-to-toe with sin and wrestle with it every time. Make a good distance between you and those desires in your heart that bring you to sin. That could mean impinging on your own liberties. But Jesus makes it clear. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better for one part of your body to go to the garbage heap than for the whole body to go to hell. Abstain from it. Don't tolerate it. Secondly, it's an implication, it's not specifically in this text, but what we see throughout Scripture is invite others in to that sin. Few wars are waged by individuals. And a godly community comes alongside those who are weak and those who are hurting, and it covers them with encouragement and grace and motivation. And you'll encounter awkwardness in there, but we must learn to see the cross because on the cross, the perfect eyes of God have already seen the filth of your sin. But now through Jesus, he calls you beloved. So we can go to others and ask them to help us in our fight against it. An English architect named Christopher Wren uh, once was asked, he was putting uh, these statues and decorating the inside of a cathedral. And he had his workers polishing the back of the heads of the statues that were decorating the cathedral. And someone said, why all this work for things that no one will see? He responded, God will see it. You see, there are some places in your private culture that only God will see. And that is sufficient motivation. But what Peter's about to show us is that actually it's the private culture of your heart which spills into the public culture of our world. There is far more to be gained in the private battle of your heart than we could ever imagine. And this is where Peter turns to his second point, which is the external battle for the heart of others. The external battle for the heart of others. I'm going to read our full text again, all two verses of it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's something that's really important. First, mind your own actions because your own soul is at stake. And here he says, mind your own actions in public because the souls of others are at stake. Peter cannot and will not disassociate Christian conversion from Christian conduct. Conversion to Jesus, new identity in Jesus, will, should, and can change our external actions. Not only how we fight inside, but what we do on the outside. Look at how Peter has shown this already. Listen to how he uses this word conduct in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy, that is to be set apart, in all your conduct. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. And then today's verse, verse 12, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, this is why we need a solid understanding of where our Christianity intersects with our culture because conversion is a stream that carries us into culture. It carries us into the watching eyes of the world. 
We should act differently on Facebook. We should act differently in the workplace. We should act differently in the brewery. Why? Because we belong to and are beloved by Jesus. It should be distinct. And Peter's specific call here is to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, there were at that time, there were Jews, these ethnic people, and they knew they weren't Jews, and Gentiles were all the other people. And actually, it was because of this verse uh, and a few others in the New Testament, Christians often got called the third race. They were neither Jews nor Gentiles, they were Christians. They belonged not strictly to the law of God, not to the rulers of the world, but to God himself through Jesus Christ. And he says, among those non-believers, conduct yourself with honor. And actually, another way you could interpret that word is conduct yourself beautifully. And I think that's really the challenge of understanding this passage, is to view this text through the lens of observable beauty. You see, we can often think our conduct to be honorable, but we can sometimes justify honorable conduct in an invisible way, right? We can sit stoically in the background and silently judge ourselves as honorable, noble, and right. But Peter's not after wallflowers here who are self-justifying their internal goodness. He's writing to people whose honorable conduct will be seen as beautiful. Good deeds will be recognized even if they are treated and responded to in less than a beautiful way. Peter's assumption when it comes to Christianity and culture is that conversion distances us from the passions of culture, but it does not distance us from the view of culture. He says, you're going to be seen. You ought to be seen. They might see your, your actions, and they might be beautiful, and they might see your good deeds in here. He is assuming that your conversion will bear fruit, which is observable in public and beautifully so. To the Casper and to the curmudgeon Christian, the gospel must be seen in your world. That's where conversion naturally carries you. There is no sphere of our world which can have Christians and not have Christian conduct. It demands to be manifested there. And to do what is beautiful and honorable also means that we must abstain from what is gross and dishonorable. And this is sometimes where we need to look a little harder. In the business world, do those around you see your Christian conduct and find the gospel to be satisfying in your life? Or do they see in you a distasteful, greedy spirit? Do your friends on Facebook see your conversations and photos? Do they drip with other love and grace? Or do they drip with self-obsession and venomous opinion? Do your roommates see your relationship to alcohol, to humor, or to entertainment to be synonymous with all the desires of the world? Or do they see in there a distinction in those spheres? So you've heard us from this pulpit harp many times over many years against the phrase, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And we typically rail against that because we know the gospel is news meant to be preached. It is words. You cannot reduce the gospel beyond the words of the gospel. And yet, we cannot simultaneously disassociate the gospel weight of our actions in public. I remember when Sarah and I were dating, um, she had a little house she was renting over there with a roommate. 
and I was taking a nap in her room. She was uh, showering. At one point, she came out of the shower and came to the room, and she was like, Tyler, get out. I'm going to change. And I'm like, I'm sleeping. I'm facing the wall. Just change. I have self-control. It's a biblical virtue. Okay? I needed someone in that moment to come say, biblical virtue or not, you're being an idiot. Um, and I was. But the truth was, I laid there, didn't look up, didn't see her. She got changed. We went on with our day. But what her roommate saw was Sarah go in in nothing but a towel to a room in which her boyfriend was and come out fully clothed. And that came up at a later point in a conversation about someone's faith. You see, we can say, man, there's grace for our sins. And if you are a Christian, yes, yes, yes. But do not assume that because you have grace for your sins, your actions are able to provide grace for those who do not have it. Your actions in public can have an adverse stumbling block effect on those whom the gospel is meant to win. There is this real challenge in calling us to consider our conduct among the Gentiles. Because there are things by worldly standards I was pretty pure in that moment. But by God's standards and by perception standards, there is no distinction. And yet, there is wonderful optimism in this text too. Wonderful optimism for beautiful works to be seen as beautiful works. Look at 1 Peter 2.12 again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now here Peter uses this phrase, day of visitation. And there, there is a sense where the day of visitation is this last day, final judgment. And we see in scripture that on that day, believers will rejoice at their salvation and glorify God. And we also see that on those days, those who spend their lives rejecting God and refusing the gospel will also glorify God because they will see him as he is. But they will also face the punishment of rebelliously rejecting that God for all eternity. And in the Old Testament, we see times where the day of visitation is, carries with it this language of judgment. But we also see in the Old Testament the day of visitation is also a day where God comes to help weak people. And actually, if you remember in this text, 1 Peter, right before this text, Peter makes it clear there is no glory for those who stumble over Jesus. For those who stumble, they are ashamed. But for those who believe, glory and honor is theirs. In a few weeks, we're going to see that Peter speaks to wives, and he says, wives, by your godly conduct, you might win non-Christian husbands to the beauty of the gospel. Given the context of 1 Peter, I think he, he is assuming that this gospel which saves believers will produce works which, even though they might be resisted by culture, will in some way known only to God result in future salvation, perhaps for those who even persecute it. He is saying that your good works might be woefully uncomfortable for you, but in God's grace, he might use it to save those who are around you. As we live beautiful lives for the gospel, people might actually see the substance of our faith, match the message of our faith, and glorify God at the end of all things because of their own salvation. Peter is really echoing a teaching he himself heard from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. 
where Jesus says this you are, to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our actions are part of our witness. Our actions are part of God's plan for his glory. In fact, a fully rounded view of evangelism realizes that words without works are just as incomplete as works without words. In other words, we act differently not because we think we're better, but because we think Jesus is more beautiful. And as the beauty of that gospel is seen more and more, we should be optimistic that the beauty of that gospel will save some. Why? Because it saved you. What makes you so special that other people can't see that beauty as well? Why do we need to have a gospel view of our faith and culture? Not because a war of culture is at stake, but because a war for our souls is at stake. And it's in this war of souls that we must understand the tension of the gospel which saves ours. So here's this tension. Is there grounds for confidence in this text? Yes. Should we believe that Christians should produce visibly beautiful work in whatever sphere they're in? Yes. Do we trust that God might use some of that beauty to win people to the glory of God? Yes. But in the middle, there is this humbling statement. Don't miss it, but don't exclusively focus on it. Look at the tension when he says this, all of this wonderful things and in the middle, so that when they, that is the Gentiles, speak against you as evildoers. You see, it's the gospel that keeps the Casper and the curmudgeon Christian from staying in hiding. But it's also what curbs the desire of the chameleon Christian and the crusader Christian to find their acceptance in culture's acceptance of them. Are we to be optimistic about culture? Yes. Why? Because the gospel saves people. And it's probably going to continue to save people. We should be pretty optimistic that the gospel is going to continue good work and we ought to utilize that. The public witness of it, the beautiful nature of it, won your soul, and it will win the lives of others as well. But the realistic nature of that gospel is that while simultaneously it is the most beautiful thing the world has ever seen, it will also be rejected as utter foolishness. And that foolishness will be felt on you as a Christ follower. During this time, the Romans didn't know what to do with the Christians. They saw them as godless, immoral cannibals. They refused to worship the emperor. And so because of that, they were godless. They were immoral. If you didn't find the emperor's good, you had no basis of good. And on top of that, they do this weird thing when they gather where they eat the body and blood of Jesus. They didn't understand the nature of the Lord's Supper. In New York, I saw one New York politician is trying to remove Samaritan's purse and their temporary hospitals from the city because of what they believe about gender and marriage. Our world will find our morality, our worship, and our charity to be distasteful because they find our Jesus to be distasteful. There will be times, and we ought to expect times, where the world will stand and applaud the fruits of gospel conduct and people will see the beauty of the gospel and they will be saved. In these moments, we rejoice that God is glorified as such and you should seek to optimistically do that in whatever sphere you're in. 
to labor for beautiful works, for all of it, to expect that God might reward it with wonderful evangelistic witness. But even when you are not met with conversion and instead you are met with contempt, we trust that it is not culture that justifies us. But it's God. And that just how on the cross, where it seemed culture had most rejected Jesus, God accomplished his greatest good for culture. So too as little Christ's. Might our labors for God's glory, even though at times rejected, result in the conversion of others because of the work of Jesus. We trust God's glory over all things. And this doesn't stop us from living out our salvation because we work for God's glory and not culture's acceptance. So there are two truths we see here at the end. The first, we recognize the culture of our heart and the culture of our world will be met with the tension of the already and not yet. There are so many good things, but not all the good things. There are so many glimpses, but we're not yet to the gateway. But secondly, we seek to do the work of costly living out our lives in boldly honorable ways of our new identity in Jesus. And we are free from how the world responds to that because we trust that God's going to use it for his glory regardless of how the world responds. That personally, in our own hearts, and externally in our actions, we get to trust that God is going to use this for our good because we've tasted his goodness. We've seen his beauty. And we know the hope of our world is not to see us as superstars or to see us as the dominant culture, but to see Christ as the all-satisfying, beautiful sacrifice by which we are made beloved by God. So let us live our lives putting aside the passions of the flesh and living in honorable conduct so that our hearts and the hearts of those around us might glorify God in the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us in the tension of our hearts. The tension of our hearts, the tension of our world, it's only the gospel that makes sense of it. So we ask you to do so in a humble way, but in a way that makes us bold ambassadors for Jesus because above all of the tension, above all of what we don't know, we know that in Christ we are loved by God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.